0: Warning, the episode you are about to listen to most likely contains graphic language, details of violence and murder, and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody, and welcome to our first episode of Murder with My Mother. I am one of the co-hosts. My name is Danica, And I am the mother half. Christy, uh, we want to thank everyone for their support. And we can't wait to bring you different true crime cases every week. Uh, not only is true crime a passion of ours, a lifelong passion, but so is spending time together. So it's super cool that we get to mix the two and bring you guys entertain that our crime junkie selves crave and why we listen to podcasts like this. Uh, for our first case, we decided to stick to something that we have always held a little bit closer to our hearts. Uh, more so than other true crime stories, as this one hit a little bit closer to home, literally.
1: So we come from a long list of teenage mothers, and I guess fathers also. In 1997, Denise and I were, I think we were in our fifth year of winging it. Uh, we had a pretty nomadic lifestyle in her early years, and uh, we were kind of finding and trying out new places to live. we have been in a couple different towns and at that time we were living in an apartment building called pacific village which was at the cross streets of craigflower road and the gorge and that's in the sanich area of victoria it's a beautiful area danika just begun kindergarten that fall at craigflower elementary school uh, which was at the north end of the craigflower bridge so I was pretty young. I was only 23 or 24. Yeah, you would
0: have just turned 23 in yeah. October. Yeah, so
1: I was young and I was just uh, discovering the nightlife of Victoria. Well, i had been a little bit seasoned for probably about a year, the nightlife of Victoria. <laughs> and it's odd because that led us closer to this case as well because I found a sweet little reliable teenage babysitter who doesn't want to be named at this time. She's still pretty traumatized by being so close to everything that went down. She lived across the street and she attended Shoreline School and she used to come and hang out at our house uh, pretty often actually with friends or you know even when she wasn't babysitting because it was kind of the cool place to loiter. You're always the cool mom. Yeah I'm the cool <laughs> mom for sure. I guess I probably had a lot less rules than every other mom being that I was almost their age like definitely less than 10 years difference in our ages. So they would come over and tell me about the different trials and tribulations of their lives and the rumor mills and the bullies and What happened at the parties? I was just as non judgmental then as I am now, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, everyone just wants to open up to you and (laughs) share.
1: Yeah, it's a curse and a blessing at the same time. (laughs) So, uh, the first that I had heard about a girl that was at school um, that was bragging that she had killed someone at a party for trying to hook up with her friend's boyfriend was probably only a day or so before all of a sudden there was uh, I was walking to go get Danika from school and there was a heavy police presence on the bridge it was just like police everywhere and they were searching for a body and up until that moment I really thought it was just an exaggerated tale that was coming from a high school and so it all began to unfold very quickly from there because Soon they were pulling an actual
0: young girl's body out of the water. See, it's so weird because I remember that happening like literally like it was yesterday. I remember um, walking, like, or like my mom said, I went to Craigflower Elementary and this happened under the Craigflower Bridge. So, I mean, for those of you who are more familiar with true crime and especially Canadian true crime, not just Canadian because this was like, was everywhere... But you'll know that Craig Flower, I was a five-year-old walking to school and all of a sudden the whole bridge was flowers and my babysitter was trying to explain to us what had happened. And and you were actually on the news
1: uh, walking across the bridge after school uh, with all of the flowers and stuff because there was news cameras everywhere and... There you are, your little five-year-old self walking
0: right through a murder scene. Yeah, and I mean, anyone that knows me, and obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, I have like a lifelong obsession with true crime, and I kind of like to think that this is a little where I kind of got my first taste of something happening in my life that I could connect with, and I've connected with that for my whole life. Remember, I mean, I was five years old, and remembering that, it's so crazy.
1: I just felt bad that, you know, we never really took it seriously. You know, it was just rumors of teenagers. And inside my head, I thought, if this was true at all, then someone would be doing something about it.
0: It was like, I think it was five days. I think it was eight days until um, they found her, recovered her body. And that was only they had a they had a pact between them, you know, keep things and not tell anybody. And so everyone, you know, as they passed the rumor along, apparently it was, don't tell, but this happened. Keep it on the low. So I guess eventually someone actually took it seriously, and yeah, they found her body in the gorge. I wonder who
1: actually ended up calling the police. Because
0: it, it was really? probably somebody's parents. Yeah. As a parent now, like, and obviously, like my mom was, like, <laughs> she didn't take that seriously. Because how often does a does a fifteen year old or sixteen year old brag about killing someone and it actually be true right so
1: yeah not the town I grew up in no no I
0: mean exactly so yeah we are going to be telling the story of Rena Burke and we will be going through a little bit about her and just give you guys some background on her so you know who she was and also go through the events of the night that took her life and some decisions that were made based on hearsay or things that seem so big when you're 14, 15, 16 years old. Uh, I guess after you go through that hindsight's 20-20, but unfortunately not everybody makes it out of teenagehood alive and this story is a story about that. So we hope you enjoy.
1: Rita Burke was the daughter of Manji and Suman Burke. She was born in 1983 and she was the eldest of three children. At the time of this event she was going to school at shoreline also uh, and she's having a difficult time as a 14 year old testing her parents and rebelling as many of us at that age do i can't relate at all (laughs) coming from the two probably worst teenagers on the planet i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) me neither so rena Uh, Her parents were of South Asian descent. Her dad immigrated from India, and her mom was born and raised in Victoria. So her dad was a traditional Sikh, which is a traditional religion in India. And her mom was actually uh, in the Jehovah's Witness faith, which is very unusual. So Rina was really a minority in a minority because her dad ended up joining her mom in the Jehovah's Witness faith and the family was Jehovah's Witness which they do hold their children to some pretty strict standards and rules and uh, She was definitely testing the boundaries She was going to a predominantly Caucasian school also, you can imagine how that would be back in those days
0: especially in somewhere like the island right you know on vancouver island it was in those days predominantly caucasian people and they looked at someone like rena as a as a minority even though she was born in victoria she was she didn't see herself any different than anyone but getting picked on slowly that chips away at you and she seemed really confident in person and when you would meet her but home it really got to her and she was very self-conscious. Like my mom said, she started to rebel. She started to dress like super with the times. And in that time, it was like street gangs, like LA street gang style. Yeah, like Bloods and Crips. Yeah, which is funny. Like, you know, the bandana with the two pieces hanging down. And yeah. like, I, I remember it so vividly. And then, uh, yeah, so she, she started, she was trying to fit in. And so she looked at, at all these girls that would pick on her and call her, different and make fun of her skin color and her body hair and all those kinds of things and she broke down and wanted to be accepted that's all anybody wants at that age is acceptance no matter how you're going to get it right so she envied these kids that had no curfew they're in foster care they you know they live in group homes she envied that because she had this strict home life that was jehovah's witness she was also raised very Her dad was from India, so she was raised a little bit traditional as well as that mix of Western, but still at the end of the day, being a teenager is so much pressure already just in your own mind that you create. So imagine you're trying to fit in with people that don't... They, they're not accepting of you.
1: Well, nobody gets you, too, when you're a teenager, especially your parents. You think everybody is stupid, and you're the only one that knows anything.
0: Yeah. Oh, if I had known when I was 14, when I never wanted to hang out with my mom, that all I would be doing was wanting to hang out with my mom. Like, you <laughs> say, you become such a loser <laughs> that you're hanging out with your mom. I have a podcast with my mom where I <laughs> don't have to be forced to hang out with her. And I love my mom sign on your wall. Uh, Rena envied these kids so much that she she came up with this plan so she she got grounded one time and her parents you know she rebelled and so they they followed through with what they said they were going to do they grounded her so what did she do she ran away and like I said she envied the lives of the kids which it's funny to think now you envy that life where you come from somewhere with a schedule and Security. security and safety and you envy kids now obviously looking at it in a psychological way it's like kids come from trauma and abuse and homes broken homes and you know and she she made a plan where she said that she was being abused at home and she reported it what happened there is she went to go live with her grandparents her mother's parents and there she was so unhappy it didn't get her where she wanted so what she did is she attempted suicide so after that Um, Because that didn't work. She reported sexual abuse against her father. And it's sad because it's reported that her and her father had a really close relationship growing up. It was his firstborn. She reported sexual abuse against him. And what happened was she was put in a foster home. So the charges were stayed. And after living in a foster home, she realized that she didn't really want to live in a foster home because a foster home is not really a nice place to be for anybody that's been in the system obviously they have first-hand knowledge of that so uh, it wasn't exactly what she imagined so uh, in September of 1997 she recanted and she went back home uh, it wasn't long before trouble started again and a month later she went into a new foster home so there she became friends with some of the kids in the foster homes and she explained you know what she was trying to get out of this And they talked to her about, oh, a group home, you know, you want to go in a group home. Group homes are for kids that have behavioral issues and nowhere else can take them. And it's like, there's no curfew. They have all this freedom and seems like, you know, exactly what she was after. So Rena made her way into a group home eventually and met lots of people there. Uh, She was constantly skipping school and she would hang out with them and spray paint places and break windows and smoke and smoke pot and she really felt like she was just starting to fit in and then the fateful night of friday november 14th 1997 happened it was a bright full moon that illuminated the whole sky like always the kids of shoreline uh, you know they would all meet all the groups like the punks the skaters the gangsters They would all meet and they'd get drunk and they'd smoke pot and they'd party and on November 14th uh, rena was invited to go for the weekly late night meetup behind shoreline where everyone went and it didn't matter the group like i said uh, some girls told rena to meet them in the parking lot of walmart and they walked together to shoreline started to get rowdy and the police were called because The whole crew, about 30 of them, were vandalizing, and one of the kids threw a rock through the window. So someone working in the school called the police and reported it. And what happens when the police come? Obviously, everybody. Exactly (laughs) right. I know, growing, uh, partying in parks. We just went to other parks. You know, until the
1: cops came, and then you just (laughs) go somewhere different.
0: Exactly. So. Rena from Shoreline, she ended up at Max, a convenience store, which was exactly kitty corner to the Craigflower Bridge. So she went there and as she was there, she used the payphone to call her parents and she spoke to her parents and let them know that she was going to come home tonight. She wasn't going to sleep at the group home because it was a little bit further and she was closer to home. So she said she'd be there in about 20 minutes and she hung up the phone. Uh, after she hung up the phone, two girls came and they grabbed Rena's arms. You know, one grabbed one, one grabbed the other, and they told her that they were going to go under the bridge, which was about two hundred meters away from there. Yeah, it was really close. not even like a hundred meters. Yeah, and asked her to come have one more smoke under the bridge, and then they were all going to go home. So there was this little dirt entrance and I'll remember it like forever because uh, we used to go under that bridge and it was like so dank and yeah just creepy yeah. because it was all spray painted under there and there was like a big it was like a big dirt area like a dirt and it step so... down there, and there yeah was, like, oh,
1: it's people's garbage maybe so. it
0: almost looked like a little like a trestley underneath you know like yeah. it had this big underneath part where it was all spray painted and there's bottles and cigarette it's everywhere and you know as a five-year-old again you have these this implanted in your memory because it was such a creepy feeling especially going in there after when it was attached to this story and so Rena was down there and the, uh, the girls they were all down there. There was about I think about 15 or 16 of them down there.
1: But unbeknownst to
0: her the reason they were
1: down there is because they wanted to beat her up.
0: Yeah and they actually had been planning to do it over at Shoreline, but the cops put a dent in their plans. And so when we talk about they, I'm talking about now they're infamously known as the Shoreline Six, which are six girls that attended Shoreline, their names being protected because they were youths at the time of their offense, but they've all come out now since then. So what it was was a girl that lived at the group home with Rena was saying that Rena stole her notebook and was calling i guess her yeah back in the day you know you had your your what is it mom like a-, a little black book like it was an address book basically yeah with names i mean like today's world you have it all in your phone back then you had a physical copy so this girl basically said that Rena had stolen her book and was going through it and calling boys or other girls and saying that, you know, this girl who she stole it from didn't think she was like, wasn't as cool as she thought she was. And all this other stuff talking, talking shit about her and trivial team bullshit, really. Yeah, something that probably all of us have dealt with in our, in our own high school lives or middle school lives. I guess what happened was Rena was down after she came down with those girls having a smoke and... Nicole, who is one of the girls that was named later, who was the first, she made the first move. She came at Rena and burnt her in the forehead with a cigarette and kind of everything broke loose and everyone just kind of started attacking Rena as that was the initial plan before they had planned, pre-planned this. Everyone started kicking, punching. Rena was screaming, telling them to stop. Please don't do this kicking her kicking her and someone yelled one of the other girls who was there who was apparently a kickboxer or something I read she basically got scared she said stop it like she's you know she's had enough yeah like give her a break so the fight got broken up and everybody most of them they went other ways so when they were there it wasn't only six girls it was six girls and one boy and his name is Warren Glowatsky Uh, he was 16 at the time
1: and he had lived in a trailer court, uh, right close to our house. He was living with his dad as a single father, but his dad had ended up meeting someone that lived in Las Vegas. And so the dad decided to move to Las Vegas and leave Warren there by himself.
0: That blows my mind that people can do that to their teenage children. especially six. obviously this story, I mean, no blame placed on anybody, but clearly that puts it in perspective. You should probably not leave your 16 year old in another country, but teach their own.
1: It's very strange because Warren was actually at our house a couple of times As he was friends with the friend group that uh, hung out with the babysitter that came over all the time. And I, that was probably one of the most surprising things. It took a little while for it to get back to me that he was involved in this. Um, And then I was actually thought it must have been a mistake because he was always pretty polite and he was funny and outgoing and stuff like that. But he wasn't,
0: he didn't seem to be a mean kid to me yeah that's so it's crazy because things that happen in the moment right so he had been involved in the first attack she made it out of that one she was walking home and him and the other offender named Kelly Ellard followed her and dragged her back under the bridge so Kelly Ellard was raised in Victoria as well and apparently anyone that you ask when this came out that she was involved in this it was like even more shocked than my mom just voiced about Warren. She was raised to be very, very nice family. She came from a good home. One of the police officers was family friends with her. The
1: initial investigator was incredulous because she knew the family and thought it must be a mistake. It couldn't be this sweet young girl that she had known since she was a little girl.
0: Yeah, so they had brought her back under the bridge. Uh, Everyone else had scattered. They left... And they dragged Rena down there and Kelly and Warren just beat her. They beat her, kicked her in the head, kicked her in the head, bounced her head off of a tree. And like, imagine, you know, you're 14 years old. By no means are you even fully grown into yourself yet. And kids a couple years older than you, it's dark and you're in this scary place. And they, they bounced her head off a tree. They're kicking the shit out of her. And Kelly bragged later that she held her foot on the back of rena's head and held her foot on the back of her head the whole time that she smoked a cigarette she finished a whole cigarette while her face was in the water yeah down in the water and she bragged about this so after the attack they left rena there they later actually uh sent one of the girls from the group home
1: that they were bullying as well down under the bridge it was a couple days later apparently to go and grab the clothes the clothes the clothes stayed there for a couple of days and the girl that went and grabbed them they forced her to hide the clothes in her room
0: so she that all came out later she was in possession of the clothes so she was one of the witnesses kelly rolled rena's unconscious body into the water and basically went on with her life there was like i said earlier there was that pact amongst all these kids to not tell anybody and just to keep it like, you know, on the low, not tell anybody, you know, so nobody found out. I don't know if they really just didn't think anyone would ever look into it. But despite that pact not to rat each other out, uh, some teachers or parents or somebody caught wind of it and reported it to police. And on November 22nd, using a helicopter, the police found Burke's partially clothed body washed ashore it was stuck under uh, some brush in the gorge so the coroner after they did an autopsy they they confirmed that she died of drowning so she did die from her head being held underwater or from any kind of injuries she sustained that led her into the water which was being pushed into the water by Kelly Ellard
1: she actually had pebbles in her lungs also
0: which indicates being still breathing yeah Yeah. Terrible. So right away, names were named as soon as the body was found. You know, that made it much more real. So other kids started to come forward about things that they had heard. And the pact was broken. Yeah, the pact was broken. And like I said, they have the name the Shoreline Six. Those girls were charged. Um, The perpetrators basically they like i said it was six female perpetrators um in any of the court documents because they were underage none of their names were known we know their names now because they've been released and yeah so nicole who's the girl who did the first cigarette burn she's the girl who was living in the group home that rena lived in that rena uh, apparently stole her book and was calling her friends or slept with her boyfriend or whatever and and Yeah, I think there was Missy Grace, uh, Pleak. Um, Those those girls have both admitted involvement. And then, yeah, Kelly Ellard, who is now, when you, what's her name? Her name's Kelly, Carrie Sim, she goes by now. Um, But yeah, one of the girls in the group, she kept trying to commit suicide after she was arrested and... uh, So she was incapable of being kept in jail. Yeah. To PTSD. PTSD. PTSD, yeah. And so um, Warren, he was convicted in 1989 of second-degree murder and given a life sentence. Um,
1: So he was convicted of second-degree murder and given, he was charged as an adult, and he was given the maximum sentence where he was unable to apply for parole before seven years. He pled not guilty, saying that he had, um, he had participated in the assault, but he, and he'd helped to drag her down to the water, but he had no idea that Kelly was planning to kill her
0: at first he didn't even want to testify in the first trial against kelly he refused to testify because at that time he was still in like that gang life mentality yeah and he was still a bit in denial and he didn't want to be labeled as a snitch or a rat
1: so in june 1999 warren went to trial in adult court uh he pled not guilty saying that he participated in the assault and that he had helped uh, Kelly dragged Rena down to the water, but he had no idea that Kelly was going to kill her. So he was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole for at least seven years, which is the maximum sentence. He was sent to adult prison um, in, in uh, the lower mainland, Matsque, Uh and that was the judge said so that he could participate in the programs they had there and get an education. In 2001, which wasn't very long after that, he appealed his conviction and they basically just laughed him out of court and he lost. The Supreme Court found that he'd actively taken part in the murder. In 2004, he again applied for parole. Uh, he, He discovered that he was Métis while he was in jail and got in touch with his indigenous ancestry and... He did a lot of programs in prison, participated in restorative justice programs. He did a lot of soul searching. Yeah, he definitely did. And, and actually, he reached out to Rena's parents, who uh, agreed to participate willingly in his restorative justice stuff. And they saw that he was making an effort, and they kept in close contact with him as much as they even, his application for parole in 2004, he didn't end up getting parole at that time because they said he just wasn't quite ready yet. But Rena's parents actually went and testified on his behalf uh, at that hearing. When you think about it, that's seven years after he took part in the murder of their daughter.
0: Yeah, I think it's important too because when you're young like that, and you know, I even think about things and actions that I've done as a young person, you think you don't have looking back on it. You think, Holy crap. How did I, how was I capable of doing something like that or thinking those ways or, and as you grow, imagine being in jail and. And realizing the horror and the horrific thing you've done. Yeah. And Rena's parents, kudos to them because I, I don't know if I could be as forgiving or as, as, Faithful as they are in in, in him and, and humanity and forgiving and all that stuff I don't think I don't think I could be so, that strong. So he
1: actually said that um, so in July
0: 2005
1: uh, He was 25 and he applied for day parole and once again Her parents spoke on his behalf and he was granted unescorted passes from prison and in 2007 he applied for day parole Saying that Rena's parents gave him the best guidance and he'd been speaking to high risk youth and participating in violence prevention, uh, and he actually got day parole at that time. Rena's mom, Suman Burke, hugged Warren tightly and Manjeet shook his hand. So that is incredible. Like, yeah, amazing it. people. They said he had learned his lesson and taken responsibility, and um, her father said, Maybe something good could finally come out of her death. It was, that's, that's just unheard of. And Warren is quoted as saying that if someone did this to my child, there's no way that I would be able to be like these guys
0: are being to me. Yeah, so forgiving. On February 9th, 1998, three of those girls that were uh, included and involved pled guilty to assault causing bodily harm for their roles in the attack. And there's actually a um, interview when the girls are on, what is it? I want to say that it's Dateline. It's Dateline. And Keith Morrison said um, to Nicole Cook, would you, would, would you think the murder would have happened if you, if you hadn't started the fight by burning her face with your cigarette and the look on her face and Nicole Cook replied, I don't know, maybe. So clearly they had a little bit more to do with the murder. And like my mom said too. She's the one that made the other girl go back the next day because she lived in the same group home. They made that girl go back and, and get her clothes and hide evidence, right? So you, you, that for me, that screams like I'm guilty. I'm, I'm guilty. She definitely didn't have remorse. Yeah. It doesn't really sound like she did years later when she gave an interview. Exactly. Well, because Kelly and Warren had made Rena take off her jacket, take off her shoes before they started to beat her up. And that's what they made that girl, the young girl that lived in the group home with them, go back and get all of her things. And that's when, because Suman, um, Rena's mother had called the police and reported her as missing because she thought that she ran away. And imagine your daughter's laying in the water. Probably her mom drove over that bridge. About eight days, that's like a super... Yeah, so crazy. Yeah, so Kelly Ellard was dubbed... Killer Kelly, that's what everyone at school was apparently calling her when the rumors were flying about her killing somebody. So Killer Kelly, uh, she had her first trial where she was convicted in March of 2000. She was convicted of second-degree murder in adult court where she was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of full parole for five years. And Which isn't even the maximum. No. Lauren got more time than she Exactly. Did. And that same year, in November of that year, the parents of RENA, they sued everybody involved. They sued everyone involved in the beating. They sued the BC government. They, su- they sued like anyone they could sue, basically, and I don't blame them. Fast forward to 2003, and the BC Court of Appeal, they announced that uh, Kelly Ellard, who actually, probably because after these trials was one of the most hated girls, women, in... North America at this point, probably, uh, with everything happening. It was very, very heavy in the media. Well, and she just exuded attitude. Oh, yeah. She looked just so bitchy. like like Nose up. No remorse, right? Um, She actually since changed her name to Carrie Sim. So, anyway, we'll refer to her as Kelly Ellard because that's who you were when you did this. That's who you are now. Killer Kelly. Um, So, she was questioned. It was... there were some things questioned about her first trial and they ordered a new trial. And so the crown accused, like just basically said people were lying. And so in 2004, uh, Kelly Ellard's second murder trial began and July 18th, 2004, a mistrial again was declared in Ellard's second trial uh, after the jury declared that it was deadlocked. They couldn't come to a decision, which whether she was guilty or not in 2005, uh, Kelly Ellard's third trial opened uh, that was February and in April she was found guilty of second-degree murder again and she was given an automatic life sentence with no parole for at least seven years so she's got a couple more years anyway exactly and then in 2006 so just the year after she appealed again and for a fourth she was asking for a fourth trial uh, or an acquittal on her charge so the crown had the option to hold the fourth trial or just give up altogether so in 2009 kelly ellard her appeal went before the supreme court of canada so that was in april and then by june the supreme court reinstated the murder because they were like look lady you did this. There's nothing else that you can spend years and years of her fighting for this. This was what 12 years by now, 2009. So they put an end to the legal case and after almost a decade, like it was over a decade, they said like, you're going to jail.
1: <laughs> she actually, she was in jail most of the time because after her first case, after she appealed and won her second case, she was out on bail and she was under restrictions. They were imposed, but her and another girl went to a park and they were drinking in a park, and they invited a woman in her 50s to come and drink with them. And later on, while they were drinking, uh, neither one of them could find their cell phone, so they accused the older woman of stealing their cell phone, and they gave her a brutal beating. They beat her up until she finally escaped and called 911, and Kelly obviously was breaching yeah, and her, her condition, so she was put back in jail, and so each time that her trials were overturned and she applied for parole, she did not get it. They were smart enough to keep her behind bars the entire time.
0: Yeah, and if that doesn't ring familiar to her first crime, clearly she would be a repeat offender if she's going to get drunk and beat someone else up and she's in her, what, late 20s by this time? Yeah. Yeah.
1: However, they kept Kelly in jail through all her trials, but after she was convicted the last time, she began having a pen pal relationship with another inmate in a different jail, a male inmate, And she was allowed to have conjugal visits with this inmate while he was on day parole. She had another parole hearing, which she was denied parole again. And then later it came out in the media that she was, in fact, pregnant.
0: Yeah, so in her conjugal visit that they're allowed, they have like these little cottages at the jail. And if you fall under the category where you have a partner, you can have conjugal visits where you basically get to spend the weekend in like a little cottage with your significant other. And so her boyfriend who the parole board says is, I guess because he was out on parole, he He wasn't,
1: he was only on day passes when he was, when he was uh, going for conjugal visits.
0: Yeah. So they, yeah. In 2017 after she was released on day parole. Yeah. Because she had given birth and then again, she gave birth, in t- 2020, like this year, she just gave birth. Yeah. So <laughs> she's out having kids and yeah, I mean. Doesn't seem fair after she was out killing
1: you know. kids.
0: No, and she was, yeah, exactly. She Killer Kelly killed a kid. Her death was a focus on preventing youth violence. Nothing had really been seen like that. Youth on youth violent to the point of killing one of your classmates. That hadn't really been something that happened often and that it was before the time of social media so there was a heavy heavy focus after this I remember just on violence and and in bullying and awareness and making sure your kids were not going through something that maybe Rena was going through and didn't have anyone to talk to about it. So Rena's parents throughout this whole thing were
1: the most forgiving empathetic strong outspoken fantastic people even through their heartbreak which was so amazing you many of you have probably seen her mom suman on tv advocating for anti-bullying and advocating for anti-racism and campaigning yet at the same time she still held a very very strong conviction on forgiveness which is something i i can't even believe that a parent that's lost a child could get to that point it's pretty amazing mm-hmm. on a sad sad note in 2018 Suman Vert perished by choking in a restaurant in
0: Victoria so she was still young and she was still um she was 58 years old yeah. and, she had, and, and to already have so much tragedy in your life and you pass away in such a scary way of choking in public like that's So sad. Yeah. And like you said, she was such a nice, forgiving, compassionate person that unimaginable. I mean, I couldn't, I, you know, I can't imagine being in her shoes.
1: And I really think we all have a lot to learn from people
0: Like the Burks? Yeah, they they dedicated their lives to speaking to kids about inclusion and how important it was to make people feel included and and not an outsider. And they used her death as inspiration for several programs that promoted nonviolent conflict resolution and and anti-bullying campaigns. And just so much came from her death, and they didn't want her death to be in vain. And it's brought so much light to anti-bullying movements around the world.
1: So if there's something that we can all take from it that's positive, just think about all of the messages that this tragic murder came with and let's all try to be forgiving and kind and humble people to each other and make sure to lead our youngsters in the
0: right direction and keep talking it out yeah and always I love what I love about 2020 well one thing I love about 2020 it's probably the only thing genuinely being yourself is is yeah. is okay and for people everyone struggles whether it be a 15 year old 16 year old you know they struggle a 50 year old a 50 year old everyone has their own stories and everyone's going through their own struggle and these days There's so much awareness on things and we forget that people are so fragile and something like this reminds us of how fragile life is just based on one or two actions that you can make in a time of not thinking straight. Thank you everybody for listening. We have had such a fun time recording this and it's been really nice to dive into these. You know, it's not a very it's not a very nice memory when you're thinking of that and thinking of all the the horrible things that came with that, but being able to deliver it to you guys and tell her story and keep her memory alive and keep the message of inclusion and loving everybody and being kind, keeping that message alive. And that's something that we will hopefully be able to give you guys every week is a story where we help keep the victims as the forefront of the story. And, really pay respect to them in their lives and some things we might talk about might be hard to listen to and the details of their passing might not always be a walk in the park to talk about and some cases will be harder than others but we are here to talk about those with you and like I said really keep respect as the forefront
1: definitely have enjoyed this evening of recording I think it's been (laughs) (laughs) she's a little tired I think (laughs) It's been frustrating and fun, and I think it's starting to flow pretty well. So I look forward to bringing you our next cases, and I hope you really enjoyed uh, our first case, and that was the murder of Rena Burke.